You're listening to Beyond the Clinic, Living Well with Melanoma, a podcast produced by Aim at Melanoma, the foundation working to end melanoma. Hosted by the Director of Cancer Survivorship for Kaiser Permanente San Francisco, Dr. Raymond Liu. Beyond the Clinic features topics seldom discussed in the exam room, but essential to patients and their families during and beyond treatment. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. It is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an aim at melanoma endorsement. Cancer research discussed in this podcast is ongoing, so the data described here may change as research progresses. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to AIM Melanoma's Beyond the Clinic podcast series. I'm your host, Dr. Raymond Liu, medical oncologist and director of our Cancer Survivorship Program here at Kaiser Permanente San Francisco. The topic we're covering today is survivorship, and we have special guest, Dr. Ann Partridge. Dr. Partridge is the vice chair of medical oncology at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and director of the Adult Survivorship Program. It's a privilege to be speaking with you today, Dr. Partridge. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of things cha- happening in the world right now, and the world of cancer survivorship is changing too. So I want to just get your perspective on it. How is it changing? Well, I think, you know, it, the world of cancer survivorship has been evolving over the last, I'd say, two or three decades. Um, but it's gone on fast forward over the last uh, two years of COVID, uh, given the, the changes that we've seen in healthcare and the increasing demand on providers and patients and the goal of um, a little bit of less is more, even though people are concerned around follow-up care, which is the traditional thinking of where uh, survivorship falls, although, of course, there are exceptions to that. Um, So I think that's one big thing that's changed where um, a lot of survivors are seeing their clinicians or doctors, their MPs and PAs less frequently uh, than they otherwise would have. And at the same time, we're we're trying very hard, as are they, to maintain a good level of follow-up care. And that can be challenging um, especially, uh, you know, for certain populations, but also, you know, not everything can be done virtually. Uh, right. Although we have shifted a lot of our survivorship care to virtually. On, on a larger note, I'd say um, the whole field of survivorship has grown tremendously over the last 20 years with an awareness that, you know, the vast majority of people will survive their cancer for some time and that um, it's okay to actually want to thrive in survivorship Mm -hmm. and people don't have to say, okay, it's just good enough to be alive, but they can want the things they wanted before they were diagnosed and actually try to get back to the same kind of health they had before diagnosis, even though there are challenges in that. Wow. So um, what I'm hearing is that there, um, there's a desire to return to a new, the new normal, uh, if that's still what we call it these days. And at the same time, the new normal is very different in the last two years um, with the pandemic. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Um, and I think, you know, again, the pandemic will probably be a blip on the screen uh, in terms of kind of the ecosystem of survivorship, except for some of the some of the good stuff, 
where there have been the acceptance that not all things have to happen in person and that we can be more efficient and more streamlined so that our patients in follow-up can spend less time uh, actually in clinics and still get the good, important counseling and supportive care they need in their communities. Um, so I think there are some good parts that will stick with us from the, from the pandemic. Um, and, and I think there's also, during the pandemic, there's been an increased appreciation for, along with the rest of our society, for the importance of mental health Mm. Uh, and how the ramifications of poor mental health, a lack of support in our systems for uh, care of uh, mental health problems has led to really catastrophic downstream issues for, for people. Uh, and, and you know you, we see it with children, we see it with um, we see it with people with chronic illness, we see it with patients who are survivors. And in general, you know, caregivers, right? The caregiver burnout mm -hmm. and the provider mm -hmm. burnout leading all the way to suicides, the extreme. And so I think that awareness, even though it's been very painful for us as a society, hopefully will lead to better resources and, and, and that, you know, that increased attention that cancer survivors will benefit from over time. Wow. So as we're moving more towards things like telehealth, I mean, we still need to see people in person for the exam and especially, for example, in our melanoma patients for the skin exam, or I know you, you do a lot of breast work, so for the, for the breast exam. At the same time, do you feel like those interactions are sort of taking away from that connection that's that's happening that can improve mental health um, for, for, for patients? Or do you think we can do a lot of this remotely? Well, I think it's a mix. I think that, you know, absolutely people need exams, right? Especially in what you just talked about, you know, especially for you know, someone that needs an expert looking at their skin or doing a breast exam. Um, but I also think for many survivors, uh, there, there have been extra visits that could have other been well served um, in, with a, you know, a good uh, shorter period of time, both for the clinician and the patient um, in terms of commute, coming in the room, some of the, some of the, uh, the pleasantries that otherwise, you know, you want to bond, but you don't need to spend a half hour in a waiting room and an hour in traffic and things like that. So I think there'll be fewer barriers if we're able to keep some of the telemedicine survivorship care going. And I think it's also going to help the healthcare system uh, because I think that um, you can see more people generally uh, for longer periods of time, which is what survivors need. They often need a lot of counseling and support. And then, you know, they only need to see one person for that skin exam. They don't need to see, you know, everybody who saw them for their cancer for that skin exam. And sometimes that happens, right? As well mm -hmm. as, you know, in breast cancer, in my, where I am, if someone got chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery, they might see their breast surgeon in follow-up, their radiation oncologist in follow-up, and me in follow-up. And they don't need more than one breast exam every six months. But sometimes and, and they the, get that. And, and the follow could happen in the same week, right? That's what happens. <laughs> yeah. and, and so yeah. we try really hard to prevent that and support patients to know that you know, they only need one. But they often do need the counseling from the different groups. And so mm. I think, or you know, trying to streamline that. So I think, you know, of course, you don't want people to fall through the cracks and think they never need to see anybody again. And that's, you know, there are other groups in our society that are more likely to fall through the cracks and see fewer and not get what they need. So I think it's the Goldilocks. 
uh, approach that we want, getting it kind of just right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we're going from beyond the clinic, leaving the waiting room at least. <laughs> that's that's what we're, the goal would be. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to talk a little bit about the mental health aspects you just brought up, because I think that that's really, really a key to a lot of this. You know, there's this the fear of recurrence. And you also mentioned like, you know, thriving, coming back to the new normal. Um, how, how do you counsel folks on the, on the fear of recurrence? Like what are, what are the resources that people have um, that, that can help them work through that? Yeah. So I think first and foremost, a fear of recurrence in a cancer situation, in a survivor situation where there is risk of recurrence, um, that's, it's normal, right? There, so mm-hmm. there's a part of me that when someone is asking me questions about their recurrence risks that tries really hard to, to normalize the feeling of waiting for the other shoe to drop, the feeling of, um, you know, what if it comes back, what will I do? And what generally most providers try to do, especially the mental health providers, is to, to help patients to not be self-critical about that but to manage those fears, to put them in perspective, to um, reach out for the resources, whether to help them to, to, to put the, both the risks in perspective, especially if they're low risk of a problem, but are you know, overestimating those risks. But some people are living with high risk of a problem and um, you want them to both be vigilant about reporting new symptoms or problems and at the same time, not let it lead their lives, you know, allow them to live their lives despite the cancer. And that can be sometimes quite challenging uh, for the patient. And, and I think I personally approach it with deep empathy for that situation uh, and try really hard to help people to both understand the facts, because there is a lot of, you know, risk misperceptions that are out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, I think the more important piece that needs to be done and that we're not as good at is to help patients to manage anxiety. You know, anxiety mm-hmm. is something that everybody faces, and um, cancer survivors, because they've faced something that's you know threatened potentially their mortality and certainly this you know gotten in the way of their normal life, and some in many many extreme ways. Um, you know, it's it's normal to have anxiety around that. It's a matter of keeping that anxiety at bay so they can live their lives. And of course, there are many techniques and um, medicines and to manage anxiety. So, you know, the best treatment for anxiety, which is what fear of recurrence is, you know, a manifestation of, um, is, um, or, or mismanagement of fear of recurrence, or it's getting in the way of you living your life, is uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And cognitive behavioral therapy has been studied for anxiety in general, and there's no reason to think it wouldn't apply well to, you know, anxiety around cancer recurrence. And in fact, it does apply well to that, um, at least anecdotally, although I'm not sure there's that much of a literature there. There's not as much as we would like. And so, you know, these are the kinds of things we want to get for our patients. And in the short term, sometimes they'll need a Band-Aid <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, out of hand, things like that, but also mindfulness and taking care of oneself can be very, very helpful in, in the short term when people are out of kind of the acute, uh, you know, hyper anxious place where they can't even sit down and think about it, which some people do. Some people are crippled by anxiety and might need more um, aggressive medical management and psychiatric management. But, but short of that, I think that, you know, getting to a place where you can process uh, 
process the real risks you face as well as how do you move forward is an important component of the survivorship journey for almost everyone. Some people are just better at it than others. And there are lots of resources. In fact, um, yesterday I heard about a, uh, I heard about a um, web-based CBT um, cognitive behavioral therapy app and I'm blocking on the name right now, but I'm sure if we Googled it, there are, we could find it. Um, for It's not necessarily for patients with cancer, but there are some that are available that may just help to manage the anxiety that's associated with the cancer. Right. So you, you mentioned a risk misperception. Uh, is it that it's hard for us to really understand what our risks are? Um, both, you know, under, under doing it or overdoing it? Because a lot of it's statistics, right? And, and how does statistics help the individual understand their own risk? Well, we, we know that the vast majority of our population is not good at statistics, right? And then you add, right, people, people play the lottery. <laughs> the odds are so low, or they're really optimistic or both. Um, but I think, um, seriously, the, there's a important literature around innumeracy, which is that, you know, many people especially related to less education um, and lower socioeconomics, are not literate with numbers. So they don't really understand statistics. And then there's a huge component of when it's you who is the person that we're talking about, the emotions and the anxiety can get in the way of your intellect around these Mm -hmm. things. And that's normal and real too. So, you know, the odds might be one in a hundred that something bad might be happen, but the more fearful you are about that bad thing, the more you might inflate it in your head. And that's, you know, that again is a management of anxiety kind of thing. Um, but there is real kind of illiteracy around numeracy that exists that is, is not uncommon, particularly under, you know, with patients who are less educated, but even when you are educated, um, it's the anxiety that can get in the way of really understanding the risks. Um, and it's important that we work with people to understand their risks, both upfront when they're diagnosed, um, so that they make good decisions that they'll be happy with throughout their survivorship. You know, I deal with this a lot in breast cancer because people mm-hmm. get diagnosed with breast cancer and often they can have a lumpectomy or removal of only part of their breasts uh, versus a mastectomy. And we've documented that women who have bilateral mastectomy actually have higher anxiety and higher or more poor um, body image and sexual health in the long term, right? Mm-hmm. Young women. Mm-hmm. And and so up front, when we're talking to them about you know, their choices, we try and make it very clear that their risk of having a new problem in the other breast is low, but a lot of them aren't able to really hear that because their risk of getting breast cancer to begin with was low, or it may mm-hmm. have been low, mm-hmm. and yet they got it anyway. So the other big component when we're talking about statistics with a cancer survivor is that they already feel like the, the odds have defied their expectations in a bad way. They feel sometimes like right. they have a target on their back. And so all the statistics in the world just didn't work for them. And so how can they believe in the statistics again? I hear that a lot. I mean, we have people that said, I did everything. You know, I never smoked in my life. And, you know, I exercise a lot. I eat right. 
Um, and how do I get this rare event in the first place? Which means, am I going to get that rare event again? Because, you know, how did it happen in the first place? Um, yep. And that seems so, yeah, like a natural question to ask. Yeah. yeah. And I think as a provider, and I hope patients feel this, I think our job is to approach that with real empathy and, and real kind of, yep, we get it. And then, you know, also then saying, and what I typically say is, yes, I totally understand that. And I know it's hard to understand for you or to, to wrap your head around, they understand the English, it's more to wrap their head around it. But now I'm applying statistics and survivorship to a group of patients just like you. You all were the ones who got that rare event. Doesn't mean you have to be the one who then has the rare, you know, the rare or not so rare event in the future. And that's where, you know, it's helpful also to, to tailor risks and discussions to the actual risk that person is facing, which, you know, in oncology, we're lucky and we have so much data about mm-hmm. risks. We don't know what's going to happen to any given person because we can't tell the future, but we can typically, at least in a, in a curative setting, give people odds and, you know, what they can do and hold on to to try and optimize those risks. And I think I'm hearing also, um, and what we've heard in other um, podcasts in our webinar series is that when, like when when do when do people know how to that they need additional help? And I think I heard what you said was when it's starting to affect their life, when it's starting to prevent them from, you know, thriving. It's when it's preventing them from doing the things they want to do. And then that's when there needs to be a little bit more of an intervention um, to, to help. Absolutely, and I think you know there's been a movement, and many clinics now screen for this, so that it doesn't have to be the person falling apart in the clinic. Because not everybody's going to do that before you get the social worker in or before you get, you know, reach for the who's in your community or how you can help to support them or even have this conversation. You know, I've always depended on the kind of how you doing, looking them in the eye and hoping Mm. they'll tell me. Uh, But I'm not sure everybody would tell me. Right. It might be a busy day for me. It might be that they want to get out because I was late. It might be because they want to be socially acceptable to me and not acknowledge some of the. Um, feelings they're having. And so um, increasingly, we're using kind of more objective ways to assess measures, you know, patient-reported outcome surveys that patients can fill out before they come for the visit to screen for some of these, um, again, pretty normal, but we can help people manage it, emotions, and especially if it's really impacting their lives. Um, We're hoping that people are, you know, able and feel comfortable telling at least a computer if the doctor or nurse practitioner or PA doesn't get to do that, uh, or they or the patient doesn't feel comfortable in that setting, so that there's that, that extra level of assessment, so we can you know do a little bit more to make sure that they um, feel supported and can move forward and thrive. That's great. So it seems like sometimes the medical system can help us, uh, you know, help screen for some of these things and then identify the issues. Um, what, do, what do folks do if because we have a lot of caregivers that sometimes uh, come into our podcast and listen in, what, what would, advice would you give to caregivers um, uh, for of, of folks? I just wouldn't call them caregivers and survivorship necessarily because uh, the, the, the folks have survived, but they still have the community around them. What do we tell the community? How do we help? help yeah. Them? So you, you make a really good point. And your comment actually made a good point that I want to kind of call out, which is, you know, when someone's a survivor, 
and they've been through the cancer. And we're talking about people not living with disease because as you and I both know, there are a lot of people living with disease who are survivors too, mm -hmm. uh, or mm -hmm. metavivors as, as I mm -hmm. think people refer to them. But let's just talk about the person who's been through the cancer and they don't have any cancer anymore that we're aware of. They're at risk for the cancer recurrence or they're at risk for new cancers or they're at risk for long-term late effects, meaning side effects that might occur uh, either during the treatment and be prolonged, that's a long-term effect, or side effects or complications of therapy that might show up years later. And um, we can talk about more of those. Um, but that person who's in that kind of curative survivorship space still may have a lot of scars, mm -hmm. literally and figuratively or emotionally. And I call that the time when the casseroles go away. Mm -hmm. And meaning, you know, when someone's dealing with acute cancer care, everybody's coming in with their, you know, ambulance. Oh, the food, the casseroles. <laughs> That's where the casseroles come in. Okay. That's where the casseroles come in. That's where, you know, someone's showing up to make a meal. Someone says, can I drive you? I mean, you know, if you're mm -hmm. lucky, some people mm -hmm. aren't supportive, but most people, the, the troops get rallied to support that patient and their mm -hmm. loved ones and patients ask for the help. And then you enter survivorship phase and someone's partner thinks they should be back to normal. Why aren't they happy? Their friend starts get jabbering more again about her kids and not paying attention or being really available emotionally to the survivor's mm -hmm. needs anymore. I'm just giving kind of extreme examples, but, but that's what happens. Life goes on for everybody else because they're not dealing with kind of, you know, the doctor visits with the patient or the nausea or the hair loss or the, you know, they're not talking about it as much, but that mm -hmm. person who went through it is forever changed. And that can take an especially long time for some people to kind of get to that new normal. And that new normal is different. And so when I think about the role of a caregiver, even though we may not call them a caregiver because they're not giving that same kind of, mm -hmm. you know, logistical and supportive care that was needed during the active therapy component of their treatment and their you know, trajectory, they still might be caregivers in the sense of being more of a kind of acceptance of where that person is now, support for them to continue their recovery, understanding that recovery may take a long time, understanding that there may never be full recovery to the person that that person was before. And that's, you know, that's complicated, right? That's kind of deep stuff. Because sometimes there are, of course, for patients, there are losses. There are physical losses and there are emotional losses. One of the areas that we deal with a lot in our young women's program that I uh, run at Dana-Farber is fertility. Mm. That's like an extreme mm. loss, right? Some people are able to have children after cancer who haven't completed their families and want children. And some people are not. And that has implications for not only the patient and potential grief and losses, but it has implications for siblings, it has implications, you know, siblings of potential children, <laughs> for partners, right, right. for parents, and kind of, you know, everybody has, that's to me one of the real extreme kind of all the caregivers and loved ones, you know, because having a child is such an important issue, both for the patient and that group of people around them, um, has real implications that sometimes work needs to be done for years to try and support that, 
that family so they can kind of move forward and feel whole despite potential losses or despite losses they have to decide about. Some people have to decide, do I have a child and what are the risks and the benefits and things like that in a different way than they otherwise would. And that's just one example. There are many other examples. Yeah, that's that's amazing because caregiving, we again, think about it in the active phase, but what I'm hearing is that you know, caregiving is really throughout that, even going into the, that that normalcy phase, and that that people still need that support. Uh, it's different; the level of support is, and type of support is different, but they still do need that from the community and their their. Um, yeah, it works families. both ways. So I've, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think the other pieces, you know, and it depends on the, you know, I, I deal a lot with couples because I'm dealing with you know women with breast cancer and I'm dealing with partners, and and I think. And with people who have other roles in their lives, whether it's, you know, in breast cancer, it's often mothers, although the men can get breast cancer and they're you know, taking care of older parents. And so it, it goes both ways that the, the caregiver needs to both accept and support what's going on with the patient. But but it's also incumbent on the patient, you know, especially as things normalize to, to accept and support what's going on with the caregiver mm. in any dyad. You have to pay attention to that if you want the relationship to, to thrive and survive, right? And, mm-hmm. and, it, and it can be really, really different from what someone expected when they, especially if it's a partnership, right? Parents and children, you didn't, you didn't get to choose, right? Most of the time, <laughs> but partners you chose. And, mm-hmm. or, and so it's, it's really tricky, kind of that evolution in a relationship. I, I mean, the, the good news is that, you know, again, I deal with a lot of partners um, male, male, I mean, female, female, and a lot of male, female partnerships, just given breast cancer is mostly a disease of women. And the good news is that it, I do find that many, many of the relationships become so much stronger after mm. having gone through, um, through the breast cancer diagnosis and treatment and people evolve together. Not always, but, but, but the good news is people can do this, but sometimes they might need a little extra help. And I know our social workers help with that a lot in the survivorship phase. Um, to help people to manage. And we've built programs around that um, mm-hmm. to, to specifically manage uh, the kind of, when, again, when the casseroles go away and patients are facing forward and how they can manage their loved ones as the rest of the world comes back in and expects them to be the same as they were before and they're just not. Um, the other thing you mentioned is about, um, you know, we're talking about survivorship as if we're there. there's this idea that you're finished with treatment and then you're done. And then you mentioned the word metaviver, which is this this concept now that we have folks that are uh, are in stage four or they're the cancer is spread, but um, they're doing fine. You're, even years later, that happens a lot in melanoma with immunotherapy uh, now, and 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 so I want to spend a little time talking about metavivers because they're survivors, definitely. And you know, how are th- are things different for them? So you know, breast cancer we've had this for a very long time. Fortunately, many people with uh, particularly hormone-sensitive breast cancer live many, many years. Um, not all, but many with hormone, with you know, on different treatments, going from treatment to treatment. Uh, melanoma. You guys have had anecdotes for a long time, and now with immunotherapy, mm-hmm. you've got a, you know this burgeoning population of survivors with new problems. Uh, but but isn't that a good problem to have compared to? you know, the alternatives that, that we were facing mm-hmm. before for those patients. And same thing in lung and many other diseases where, uh, particularly with the immunotherapies and some of the chronic t- targeted therapies, we've seen uh, kind of revolutionary changes in what we would expect, right? And so we have these growing population, and I hadn't used the term metaviver. I like it. <laughs> uh, I, I, I consider it survivors living with advanced disease, 
or the risk of advanced disease um, kind of declaring itself again. Uh, but I like Metaviver. <laughs> so I, I do think that uh, we increasingly are trying to pay attention to those groups. The difference between that and someone who has been treated uh, with curative intent and has no evidence of disease is that those Metavivers are still seeing their oncologist traditionally. Mm -hmm. Whereas in our systems, at least to some degree, unless they're really far out, right? Whereas uh, a survivor after, you know, depending on the disease you have, you know, a more traditional NED, no evidence of disease survivor, you know, would be graduated to either a survivorship clinic or just back to the primary care physicians, you know, after five, 10, certainly by 15 years for your average person. And so uh, I think that's where the difference is in terms of care, uh, because, you know, a, a metavirus is still going to be under the care of an oncologist and still have the opportunity for all of the kind of intensive resources. Um, but that oncologist may not pay attention to some of the kind of softer stuff because they may still be in the framework of my job is to focus on the kind of getting people through treatment. And these people are never going to get through treatment fully necessarily, unless they're really lucky and we can stop it, which I know we're starting to do in some of our patients with advanced disease. So they may not pay attention to the, you know, the psychosocial issues as much unless the person's falling apart to the financial toxicity that we see, especially with some of our newer targeted drugs that patients with advanced disease may need to stay on for a long, long time. And so I think it's a different bunch of resources and issues that we need to think about for our patients living with advanced disease than we do for the, the more kind of classic survivors. But I think we are doing it more and more. And there are programs that are being kind of built out. Survivorship programs are programs within cancer centers or within disease type groups that are focusing more on the people who are living with the advanced disease, again, helping them to thrive as well and not just be happy to be alive. Uh, because we know that's not the way life works and that, you know, even when you have advanced disease and, you know, hopefully it's under control that day, you're allowed to have a fight with your spouse. Mm. The rest of the world doesn't go away. You should be able to have, you know, good sex again mm -hmm. <laughs> if you want to. You should be able to, you know, worry about, you know, the, the extreme of that is also fertility, you know, and that's a typical mm -hmm. one. Or, um, you know, be able to work and have accommodations because especially as people live longer, they need to think about their financial status for longer. And that person may need more accommodations than the average to get to the doctor's appointment or for any disabilities they've dealt with because of their cancer or cancer treatment. Uh, so these are things we need to think about chronically with these patients. Dr. Partridge, we've talked about so many things today and I can't believe 30 minutes has already passed. You know, we've, we've covered how to get to to that uh, that point where we can thrive again? We've talked about the the anxiety or fear of recurrence components, the emotional components that are often not addressed in our in our clinics and need to be. We've, you've just touched on the financial aspects of it. We've talked about caregiving, and we've talked about you know metastatic survivors or metavivors, um, and how to um, how to screen for those things and, and communicate with with our with our care teams. So. Um, Anything else before we finish that you you want to start to say about how do we get get back to our new normal? Yeah, I think the only the only thing I would add is that you know for any survivor that's paying attention, whether it's someone living with advanced disease or being NED, I, I think it's important that you advocate for yourself. Mm. And and one of the things I try and teach my patients, and I try and teach through some of our um, research and interventions that we disseminate is. 
um, you know, it's a little bit of not squeaky wheel gets the oil, but just, you know, asking for what you need, highlight, being both aware and then highlighting to your providers in follow-up the, this isn't working for me. And, you know, how can we get to a better place? How can I feel better? And trying to, um, you know, and, and do you have resources? So if, if it's, I'm really upset and anxious and, you know, fear, fearful of my recurrence, for example, then talking to the provider about it. And then if the getting the information from the provider about the numbers doesn't help, which happens a lot, I would say, pay attention to that Mm -hmm. and figure out what else you need and work with that person. But it takes a certain level of awareness. And, you know, I have people come in over and over and keep asking me the same questions. Mm -hmm. And I finally sometimes look at them and I say, listen, the numbers don't seem to be helping you. I think what's going on here, tell me if I, if you disagree, is that you're having a hard time wrapping your head around the numbers and really, you know, having the numbers help you to settle down. How can we get you to a place where you feel more comfortable Mm -hmm. to move forward and not kind of, you know, feel so anxious around it. And if you do that in a non-judgmental way, people go, yeah, I am feeling anxious. What else you got for me? Mm. And then you can plug them in with the resources. Uh, so so I, I'm telling, you know, pay, any patient listening, be aware that that happens. Not all doctors can handle that. But so you can ask for yourself and just articulate. Say, I'm really anxious about this. You know, you got anything else for me, doc? And I think that could go a long way to kind of minimizing some of the miscommunications that may happen in follow-up. Doctors like to give answers, but the answers aren't always the solution. Oh, that's a great, that's a great way to end things because I think that that communication is so important. Self-advocacy is so important. And um, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really educational for us. You're welcome. My pleasure. For more information on this topic, please visit aimandmelanoma.org. If this podcast was useful, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple, Google Play, or Spotify. This podcast offers insight into the world of melanoma care, covering a range of educational, inspirational, and scientific content. You can find all shows, including this one, at aimatmelanoma.org. Aim at Melanoma is a global foundation dedicated to finding more effective treatments and ultimately the cure for melanoma. 